All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Um, obviously, the last two times I taught, we were in one in chapter 1 and chapter 2, just to summarize those. Um, Matthew was written to the Jewish people, and it was the, it, it was been called the bridge builder because um, it's the first book of the New Testament, and it quotes the Old Testament 125 times, and so it bridges the gap there. It, it connects the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament fulfillments. And the theme of Matthew is that Jesus is king. And in the book of Matthew, we see the king coming to really reveal to us his kingdom. He's the king of the Jews. But the thing is, the, Jew, the, 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 the kingdom Jesus is revealing wasn't the kingdom the Jews were expecting. They, they were expecting an outward political takeover. And, and that will happen someday at Jesus' second coming. But now... Um, what he's doing is he is, he's coming to, he's bringing a spiritual kingdom. It, it's a kingdom that's set up in the hearts of people. And, and to be a citizen of this kingdom, you have to be a spiritual being. The unfortunate thing is, because of our sin, we've been separated from God. And, and nobody is a spiritual being. And so, we have the three musts. We must repent, we must believe, we must be born again, which is a miracle God does where he comes and he puts his spirit in your heart. Enables you to become a part of that kingdom. It's an awesome thing. In uh, chapter 1, we saw the king's credentials, his claim to the throne, and also some information about his birth. And in chapter 2, we saw people coming to acknowledge him as king. problem was it wasn't the Jewish people. It was those wise guys from the east who came instead. And we also saw the Lord protecting the king from his enemies. And so we come to chapter 3. And in this one, we're going to be introduced to the king's publicist, his front man, the guy who's coming to, prepare, to make preparations for the king's arrival. So we begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's been 30 years since Matthew chapter 2. This is around Jesus' 30th birthday. John the Baptist has come. And you know, the last prophecy of the Old Testament was Malachi. And then, it's like 400 years, no prophet in Israel. Silence. And then out of nowhere comes John the Baptist. Comes out of the wilderness. And it's very fitting that, he's, that he comes out of the wilderness because the nation of Israel was kind of in a wilderness place themselves at that point. Kind of floundering. And John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner to Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 spoke of, um, verse 1 said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way of the Lord before me. Job's, uh, John's job was to make everything ready for Jesus to come. Now, um, which reminds me of a, of a certain person. In 1994... Billy Graham came to Atlanta, and he did a crusade. And it was incredible. I, I, got, I had the privilege of being a counselor. And uh, it was an incredible event. It was uh, five nights um, of adults. And then a Sunday, uh, Saturday morning, we had a kids thing with uh, Calvary Chapel's own Ernie Rettino, uh, also known as Salty, the singing songbook. And, uh, and on Saturday night, it was youth night where the record was set for attendance at the Georgia Tome. 
78,000 kids. And Billy preached, and uh, it was a DC talk saying, you guys remember Liberty, Liberty Zone, for a lot of you Liberty folks, DC talk. You know, uh, what will people think when they find out I'm a Jesus freak, you know? And uh, so they were awesome. It was an awesome event. 311,000 people attended the whole week. Lots of people got saved, thousands, came and gave their lives to the Lord. Even my own drinking buddy who uh, had been arguing me about Jesus, told me, you know, you know Christians are arrogant. He, he went forward and gave his life to the Lord, still walking with the Lord today. The youth night was, it was incredible, though, probably the highlight for me, because when the altar call was given, I mean, it was just a flood. And, and us counselors were over. I had 25 kids just surrounding me saying they wanted to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. So it was a great event. And when, uh, about a year before that happened, my uh, pastor was invited uh, slash recruited to be a part of the leadership team with a lot of other pastors from the Atlanta area. And he met a man that he told us about named Dan Souther. And Dan had a very important job. Uh, Dan worked for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and what he would do is when they decided they were going to have a crusade somewhere, he would move there about a year in advance, and he would prepare everything, set everything up for Billy Graham to come and preach. Well, that's John the Baptist's job. Not, not to set everything up for Billy Graham, but for Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and that's what he did. He was, he, was, he was the former. He was the one who had an utterly important and necessary job, and that was to prepare the hearts of the people before Jesus arrived to preach. And so he says here in verse 2, And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, it's been 400 years at this point since God had spoken to the people through a prophet. And so the first one who comes, what's the first word he says? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so at this point, we need to, I kind of want to get some definitions down, kind of give us a, you know, I, I kind of want to sit on this a little bit and uh, talk to Tyler about this a little bit. We kind of went into it about uh, some different um, things. Um, the first definition we want to look at is sin. Sin is an attitude or disposition of self-rule that puts me at enmity with God, that makes me an enemy of God. And, and in the Old Testament, uh, the word repent in the Hebrew means to turn from. And in the New Testament, it means to change your mind. And so those two things have to do with sin and our attitude, our disposition of self-rule. And our sinful actions are a result of our sinful attitude or disposition within us. And repent is an attitude that stimulates action. A lot of people think it's an action, they get confused, but it's an attitude within you. It's within us regarding sin. And it, and it is an action word, it does stimulate action. But repent, we kind of did the amplified version here because we really want to look at this. I, you know, what all is involved with repent? Because you hear the word repent, people go, yeah, yeah, repent. What? Well, it involves a lot. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's a very important thing. It means to change your mind and attitude about sin. It means to acknowledge, abhor, and renounce my sin. 
to agree with God that I deserve to die and go to hell, which is because I'm separated from him by my sin, and to turn away from my sin and ask for forgiveness, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to change. That's repentance. It's, it's, some people consider it an offensive word. Some people say, man, you don't have to repent to be saved. But I say to you, that's, they're wrong. Jesus came to die for sin. And how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You know, when you repent, you don't love the world any longer. You aren't into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, hatred, rebellion, cynicism. You know, just selfishness, self-focus. You're not into it anymore. You're saying, I'm done with that. Real repentance is being so sorry that you stop doing it. You stop, you stop doing the sin that you're repenting of. And it's the only message that John had. He didn't have any other message. You know, go, okay, what else you got, John? Nothing else. Just repent. Without repentance, including the acknowledgement and confession of the need to repent, there can be no true conversion. Let me read that again. Without repentance including the acknowledgement and confession of the need to repent, there can be no true conversion. Why? John 14, 23 uh, gives us some insight. Jesus is speaking, and he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Father and Jesus will make their home by the Spirit in the heart of those who love Him. And that's the key. The heart of those who love God, that trust God, that desire to be obedient to God by keeping His Word, that's no longer in rebellion against God, that is, in a word, repentant. That's why faith is so important to to God. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith. Without trusting God, it's impossible to please Him. You've got to believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You've got to believe that God exists and that He loves you. And if you draw near to Him, He's not going to backhand you away. He, he, he longs to be close to you. And He loves you. You know, you've got to believe that. And he won't, God won't indwell the heart of somebody who won't trust Him. Romans 2.4 says it's the goodness of God. When we see that, that's what draws us to repentance. In that case, it was, man, God loves me. How can I be judging everybody else? I need to love everybody else. And in 1 John chapter 3, we see the works that Jesus was talking about, the word that Jesus was talking about keeping. When, it, when we read, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave his commandment. Now he who keeps his, God's commandments abides in God, and God in him. That is the word that we keep, that we believe in God and love one another. We believe in Jesus. And that's why God and Jesus loves you and will make their home in your heart. And so repentance kind of plows up the field of our heart to get it ready. To to get it ready for God to come and dwell there. Again, the only message of John and what it's doing is it's preparing the way for the kingdom of heaven to come and exist within you. 
That's the good news, guys. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and people say, well, you know, repentance, it, it, it's not necessary to salvation. I say to you, they're wrong. Matter of fact, in almost every case of everybody we look to who brought the gospel to us, it was their first word. Jesus, we'll see in the next chapter, chapter 4 of Matthew. Matthew's in, I mean, uh, John's in, been put in prison. And so Jesus just kind of picks up the mantle. And he says, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples had the same first message in Mark 6. Where they, and it was repent. Man, when Jesus was outlining the gospel to the disciples after he'd risen from the dead in Luke chapter 24, the first thing he mentions is that repentance needs to happen. Peter, Acts chapter 2, 38, he doesn't say believe, he says repent and be baptized. You know, repentance is a turning from, and you've got to turn to. And so they're almost, they're, 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 they're part of each other. They can't really be separated repent and believe. You, you have to repent and you have to believe. And, and, and we saw, in the, in the, especially, in the, especially in the book of Acts, where repentance would be called for, implying belief and vice versa. You know, um, people say you don't have to repent to be saved. And in a sense, that's true as far as saying it. But it's like if I'm in Dallas, you guys are here. And I call and say, hey, you know, come to Dallas. I don't have to say leave Birmingham and come to Dallas. When you come to Dallas, you're implying you're leaving Birmingham. That's happening. And when you believe in Jesus, you're implying you're repenting of your sin. Because that's what Jesus came for, to save us from our sins. We have to. In chapter 13 of Luke, he tells us we must repent. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And because, and, and because God loves us, He'll stir, he gives a parable about the nation of Israel there, Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9, where he talks about a tree, a fig tree, symbolic of the nation Israel, it was planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've been come, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up ground? And... The keeper said, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, then you may cut it down. You know, and, and, and in response to saying we, everybody has to repent, he tells this parable where if you're not repentant, if you're not bearing fruit to God, God will do something about it because he loves you. Now, and I can't say if it's true or not. I don't have the ability to judge what God's doing in your life. But you can ask him. And if things are kind of stirred up in your life, if you kind of had some stinky stuff thrown on you, digging around in your life and you're, and you're struggling, you, why? Ask God. He'll tell you. If it's something you need to repent of, or if you just need to repent in general in your life, turn from your sin, and ask God. He'll let you know. He'll tell you if that's the case or not. But God loves you. And, and Dan John said that what the Lord does in order to bring us to himself is through a series of events, he will separate a person from themselves to where they, they get to the end of themselves and they're ready for God. And, and that, that may be what's going on in your life. You just got to ask God. 
You know, and faith is so important to God. We, we need to keep in mind Romans 14, 23, that says, For whatever is not from faith is sin. When you have faith, you'll be trusting God, and you won't be rebelling against God, which is part of our definition of sin. And lack of faith and not trusting God is what kept the children of Israel out of the promised land. A whole generation died in the wilderness because they didn't trust God. They rebelled. They needed to repent. And Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us they were worrying, they were fearful because they wouldn't repent. They were discontent with God's provision. They were complaining, murmuring. Some of them fell into rebellion against their leaders. They fell into idolatry, which is looking to others, began to look to other stuff to do in their lives, what God was supposed to be doing. They got into sexual immorality. And with most of them, the Bible tells us, God was not pleased. I reckon there's only two, Caleb and Joshua, that actually went into the promised land. Our fear and their fear came from unbelief, from lack of faith, from not trusting God. And, and Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict, convict the world of sin. And then he only mentions one sin, because they don't believe in me. You know, that's the key. Faith in God. Trusting God. We must repent of our unbelief and trust God. And God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. You know you've got the Lord. When His Spirit, when His spirit is within you, man, and, and man, with faith, man, you, you just, he, he helps you to overcome your fear as you trust Him. You know, it, He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Uh, a spirit, he's given us of... Uh, a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear is the opposite of faith. I remember Y2K. I don't know if you know, it's kind of, you know, some of you guys will remember Y2K. And we were, us Christians were afraid of Y2K. People were digging, you know, play bunkers and everything and filling them up and doing stuff like that. I remember uh, what our pastor, he went to a meeting about it at, among Calvary Chapel pastors and, and Pastor Chuck was there and and they were all concerned, and they asked Chuck, you know, what, you know, what, what do you think, Chuck? And, and he just gave one of those big sighs, and just said, trust God. That's what we need to do, guys. We just need to trust God. God's got it. Amen? Amen. We don't have to worry. You know, and even though repentance can be painful, it's a beautiful thing, because it brings you to salvation. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Paul says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made so sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, never to be regretted. So important. Repentance. So, let's look at verse 3. Matthew verse 3, For this is he, John the Baptist, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Matthew quotes Isaiah 43 there. And he's saying, you know, basically that verse says, You know what? We need to walk in the straight paths of the Lord and turn from our crooked ways. Now, 
That's, that's his message. That's what he was prophesied of. And his birth was announced. John the Baptist's birth was announced by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1. Um, we need to know about John, that uh, he was Jesus' cousin. He was six months older. And the angel Gabriel says to Zacharias, his father, to John's father, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the children of Israel. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before the Messiah Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God in his perfect foreknowledge and sovereignty dedicated John to himself for a special purpose even before he was uh, conceived. And John embraced that identity. Jesus will say of John in Matthew 11, among those born of women, there is arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says John is as great as anyone who's ever lived. Why? Because he's obedient to God, we'll see. And because he was totally focused on, on accomplishing the task that God get, has given him. He streamlined, streamlined his life to that purpose. He had a simple life that didn't distract from his task. Luke chapter 1 tells us he didn't drink any alcohol. He didn't get into any of that stuff. Some believe he may have been, uh, taken the, been a perpetual Nazarite. Uh, the vow that the Jewish people took where they wouldn't, they wouldn't drink or, or partake of the fruit of the vine, grapes. They wouldn't touch anything dead. And they wouldn't cut their hair. So he may have been like Samson. We don't know that for sure. We also don't know, but it, it, there's no mention that he had a wife. Which, wives are awesome. I got one, and it's a great one. She's a great one. But Paul says, you know, when you got a wife, you got to be concerned about pleasing her too. And so John may not have had, like Paul the Apostle, but he was following the Lord. And verse 4, it says, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. <laughs> no fancy clothes, no smooth presentation. A rough edginess, and he lived off the land, eating bugs and honey. You know, he might have had to pick a grasshopper leg out of his teeth sometime or something. I don't know. I, I don't know about that diet. He's dressed in the rugged attire of an outdoorsman. And his lifestyle and attire identify, identified him with another forerunner to come. The prophet of the past, Elijah. Listen to this description of Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8, when uh, King Ahaziah's men described him to the king, they called him a hairy man, wearing a leather belt around his waist. What did we just read about John? John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And here's the deal you need to know about Elijah. He didn't die. It says in 2 Kings 2.11 that then it happened as Elijah and the one who was with him, Elisha, continued on and talked. Then suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire separated and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And prophecy says Elijah will return. 
Malachi 4, 5. It says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before you, coming of the great dreadful day of the Lord. So, two forerunners. We have, that's what we have. Je- because Jesus is going to have a first coming and a second coming. He's going to have two forerunners. From both, he's going to have a forerunner for each coming. And many believe that Elijah may be one of the two witnesses we studied when, uh, at the prophecy conference uh, and when we're going through eschatology in Revelation chapter 11. Um, he may show up then during the tribulation period before Jesus arrives at his second coming. And based on Malachi 4 5, Jewish families at Passover will always leave an open seat for Elijah. You know, because he's got to come back before the Messiah. And so maybe this year, Elijah will be back. Regarding John and Elijah, Matthew 11, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Speaking of John the Baptist, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, Jesus isn't saying John is Elijah reincarnated. What he's saying is that John is fulfilling the role that Elijah will fulfill as a forerunner. Before him at this point, if you can, if you can handle that, but at his first coming. Gabriel also said in his pre-birth announcement that John would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. In verse 5, then Jerusalem, listen to this, this is amazing. All Judea and all the region around the Jordan Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. That's incredible. Everyone was repenting. Everyone was confessing and coming to be baptized, they were, it, it, which is amazing because the Jews, they were never baptized. You know, they, they usually, uh, that was something that the, their Gentile converts would do, but it was such a humbling thing. They wouldn't do it. And I, I want to tell you guys, this is what revival looks like. Repentance is at the heart of revival. That acknowledgement, I'm a sinner, and, and turning from it. Everybody's doing it. How did John do this? That, you know, number one, he did it without all the things we have today. Uh, Rick and Danny and I were talking about technology, and it's amazing how technology is boom, boom, boom. And, you know, I'm just an old dinosaur. You know, but John had nothing. You know, I mean, he, he didn't have any gimmicks. He didn't have any gadgets. He didn't have a mailing list. He didn't have radio airtime. He didn't have the Internet or newspaper or TV. He didn't have any of that stuff. He had what most would consider an offensive message. And he, he, was, he definitely wasn't dressed for success. How did he do it? And I want to tell you one way. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. God's Spirit working. And that's what the angel Gabriel said in his prophecy to John's parents. He said in verse 15 of Luke uh, chapter 1, he said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And um, Mary went to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, after she became pregnant with Jesus. And in verse 41 of Luke chapter 1, it says, When the pregnant Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, then the babe, John, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that. John was filled with the Spirit and fired up about Jesus before he was even born. John had a dedicated life. He had a humble attitude. He had a message from God. 
But the power of the Holy Spirit was most important. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing, let me say this, nothing of eternal significance can be done, guys. You know, Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, he was telling he was talking to the disciples about what was, let me, let me just read this to you. After Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Look, these disciples had seen the risen Lord. You think, man, that's enough. And now they've been through a 40-day intense seminary. A combined little seminary, man. Can you imagine the risen Lord teaching you as your instructor? And you think, man, they're ready. But Jesus says, you're not ready. You're missing something. And he commands them to wait. And they don't really understand it. So they go, oh, so you're about to restore the kingdom? Is that what's going on? He goes, no, don't worry about that. In verse 8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Receiving the Holy Spirit was so important that Jesus told them, you've got to wait for it. You can't go anywhere until then. Then, when they received the Holy Spirit, they would be able to do what God had called them to do. And it happened when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The former coward, Peter, was empowered. And he preached. And 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. It was an amazing thing. And remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, guys. Unless we're attached to the spiritual vine that is Jesus abiding in us. The sap of the Holy Spirit flowing out and bearing fruit as we just abide in him. Men can build organizations, but unless the Lord builds a house... They labor in vain that build it. And no lasting fruit will be produced. Remember the guys that came to Jesus said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith, he tried about 19 years. When he got out of Bible college, he thought, man, I got it together. I'm really going to do great things for God. And he worked hard in in his own efforts. And he, he basically... Didn't accomplish much. So he came to a place where he quit. He was burned out. He was worn out. He quit trying. He said, Lord, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. He just began to teach the Bible simply. It's verse by verse. Man, ministry took off. The hippies came. The Jesus movement started. And they exploded. I mean, it just exploded. He's just a simple guy. And uh, it got so big, they had, to, they had to move out of their church building and get one of those three-tiered circus tents, just fill it with a sea of folding chairs. 
fill it up five times every Sunday. And uh, one Sunday night, his son re- recounts that they were, they were kind of cleaning up and straightening things up outside the tent at the end of an evening. And, and Chuck looked over at the tent and he looked at his son and he said, son, look at this. He said, this is amazing. He said, you know me. He goes, you know I didn't do this. This is a work of God. And he just praised the Lord for it. He hadn't done anything. He admitted it. You know, and, and he recounted later in an in a, in a article in Last Times Magazine, he said, Calvary Chapel isn't an ambition fulfilled. It isn't something where I thought, I'd like to have a huge church. I was so worn out, tired, over the hill that I thought 250 was all I could handle. What has happened has happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a Calvary Chapel, a big verse around Calvary Chapel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And since we didn't have to gain it, he said, we don't have to strive to maintain it. That's beautiful. Because I can still be relaxed and still just be Chuck. I don't have to worry about anything. Because it's his church. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Realizing that it's his church and his work, I just sit back, enjoy it, and watch him do the work. And what a thrill it is to see God do what we couldn't do it at all. I want to say to you guys, that's the same way it is in our lives. We've got to cease striving. A lot of times we're like, I'm going to do it for God. We won't do it for God in our flesh, guys. We've got to come in faith with simplicity of gladness of heart. Ask the Lord to fill our hearts and our lives. Just abiding in his word. Jesus' presence in our lives. Praying, fellowshipping, worshiping God, being a part of his family, loving people, sharing the word with them. And as it says in Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord will add to the church daily those who are being saved. Praise the Lord. John the Baptist was empowered in the same way. Verse 7, chapter 3 of Matthew. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's obvious John had not taken Dale Carnegie's course, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the thing is, he could care less about what anybody thought but God. He was fearless in saying whatever God told him to anyone at any time. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the most powerful people. The most powerful religious people of the day, I should say. The Romans were in charge politically. But John calls them, these powerful people, a family of snakes. And they were. Listen, the Pharisees were the proud legalists of the day. They were the fundamentalists. They they were just knocking people over the head with the word of God. And the Sadducees, they were the liberals. They, They really didn't believe in God, actually. They were just using religion to gain money and power. And they were as dangerous as snakes. And so John says to him in verse 8, Repent, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance, like we've said, is an attitude of the heart. Repentant actions are the fruit of that attitude. And if we're repentant, John's, if you're repentant, he says, let's see it in your actions. Repentance, true repentance will will produce actions. And it's what the Lord wants. He wants to see evidence that I've changed, that I've repented, that I'm no longer putting myself in places to sin. 
I'm no, I'm no longer hanging out in those old places. If I got a problem with drinking, I'm not going to go to the bar to buy a Coke. You know, if I got a problem with sexual immorality, I'm not going to hang around with that girl who you know is promiscuous. If I, if I, you know, we're just not going to put ourselves in those situations. We might have to do something drastic if necessary. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. <laughs> That's some drastic stuff right there. But it must be done. You know, to avoid hell. We've got to do it. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 11... Jesus said, for the, talking about John, he said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, a lot of people say, hey, that's just them, Jesus talking about John the Baptist being thrown in prison, which, you know, maybe, but there's a spiritual application here, I say to you. Based on John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. It's in the hearts of people. And nobody in this world can take it by force. There's spiritual warfare going on there. And repentance is an act of violence in this spiritual kingdom against one's own rebellious spirit. I'm the example. You know, when I, I grew up in the church, I lived two lives. Never born again, never knew the Lord. Very religious Told people I knew the Lord. And then, you know, when you're a legalist, you have this list of things, you know, that kind of make you feel good about yourself. You go to church on Sunday, you tithe. And um, certain things you'll never do. Well, I ended up breaking all the rules. And at that point, the Lord had brought me to the end of myself. And I was under the Holy Spirit's conviction. And man, I was in turmoil. I, yeah. There was some serious spiritual, and I knew what I had. To, I knew I needed to repent. I knew the Lord was calling me to repent and believe. And there came a point where I finally just had to say, no more. It's over. Enough. And I was broken. I was weeping. I'd always gone to church and said I was saved, but at 26 and a half, I found myself walking down the aisle. That was a spiritually violent act against my pride, guys. I was admitting before everybody, I've been a liar all those years. When I did that, there was a violent crucifixion spiritually that took place inside me. That's what Paul says. He says, look, in Galatians 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. <laughs> and I was born again that day, January 1987. I was set free from that old selfish jerk that I was. I mean, he's still, those tendencies can be in my flesh. I got I to gotta watch. Was, my flesh was trained to do it. That bad guy, he's dead now. Replaced by Jesus. Set free. Man, the weight of sin was gone. <laughs> I was forgiven. There was peace and joy. And, and, and when I did that, man, I walked down. And, I, and everybody knew it but me, it seems like. 
pastor looked up and he looked at me. He said, what's up? I go, I'm giving my life to Jesus. He goes, it's been a long time for you coming, hasn't it, man? I said, yeah, it has. And I went down and they would have people come across and shake your hand for doing what you did in the church I was in. And this one guy came out of the choir, old guy. He, uh, this bald-headed guy with a mustache and everything. And he had on his choir robes. He walked over and he looked at me and he said, it took a lot of guts to do what you did today. And I said, yeah. I go, but it was worth it, man. Because I knew I was free. Amen. I don't know. And I remember saying to myself, what was I waiting for? Why did I resist it so long? And, and the answer is my rebellious spirit was fighting it. Didn't want to die. Our rebellious spirit is like Old Yeller. Y'all remember Old Yeller, the movie Old Yeller? Man, that movie crushed me when I was a kid. It's about a love it. family has got this loving dog and gets rabies and it goes crazy. It's going to kill him. And, and, and the son, Travis, is like, oh, no. And his mom's like, you got to do it. I don't want to. It was awful. She hands him the gun. Boom. Man, they had to put that dog to death. And we got to put our rebellious spirit to death, guys. You can't do it yourself. You can't crucify yourself. It's crazy. You know, you can't. The Lord has to do it. It's a miracle of the Lord. But you got to come with that attitude. Lord, do it. Maybe pain, tears, but who cares? You got to get saved. You got to get into the family of God, not go to hell. Hey, that's some drastic stuff that's got to occur. Amen? And the Lord will help you, He will empower you. And once you're saved, He won't allow you to fall back. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle, He says in 1 Corinthians 10 13, but it'll make a way of escape. Of course, we know Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He's the one who's with you, He's in you. He'll help you. He'll bring change to your life as you confess your sin and worship Him. You know, Jesus is in the business of changing people by His Holy Spirit. I love what Crawford Loritz said. He said, you know, today in today's world, he said, it's not a bad thing. He said, but we're really into self-analysis. And it can be good unless it becomes self-defining. When, when that becomes self-defining, we're in trouble. As Christians... We can't accept that because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is in the business of changing people. He changed me. He can change you. Then we get insight into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, We all, with unveiled face, we've pulled aside, we've confessed ourselves, we've admitted, looking, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Holy Spirit. Man, God does the work. As we just confess our sins and repent, we just focus on the Lord and we see him. It's like we're looking in the mirror and we're going, what? Well, it's Jesus in you guys. And that spirit that's in you, he will transform you. And to, it's, as a matter of fact, that's God's goal, it tells us in Romans 8, verse 29, to be conformed into the image of his son. As we repent and believe. Verse 9 Chapter 3 of Matthew, he says, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. That's what the Jews would say. They were proud of that. John says, For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And they were proud of their Jewish heritage. They thought they were, as descendants of Abraham, that's all they needed to be saved. But John says, You're wrong. That's worthless to God. 
God could make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. It's important to God. Being a child of God is more than being a part of a certain family. Being a child of God is a matter of faith, of trusting God and believing in Him. Our faith in Him is what God values. That's precious to Him. That's what pleases Him, guys. Verse 10. And even now, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Sound familiar? Jesus' parable? He's saying this to those religious leaders. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Israel, John says prophetically, is about to be chopped down and thrown in the fire of hell. And he's warning the Jews. Judgment is near. Verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I love the humility of John. You know... He's not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. It says in the other Gospels, he says, I'm not, I can't untie his laces. Humility is just honesty about yourself. When you come face to face with who God is, true knowledge. And, and it's just being honest about yourself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Jesus said, John is great, you remember? But John says, not, not compared to Jesus. Greatness in God's kingdom is tied to true humility. Greatness in God's kingdom is tied to the recognition of the truth that God is great and without Him, we are and can do nothing. Greatness in God's kingdom has everything to do with faith and reliance on God. Remember, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apartment from me you can do nothing. And John knew this. He knew that. And he rejoiced in it. He said, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm, 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 I'm the friend of the bridegroom. You know, and, 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 and man, Jesus is all that's mattered, all that matters. And John knew his ministry only existed to prepare the way for Jesus. And he embraced that truth and enjoyed it. He said, I, I rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. Whenever people put the spotlight on John, he would always turn attention to Jesus. Always. And we should follow John's example. We, we, Jesus must increase in and through our lives while we decrease. That's the goal. He says, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of John was for someone who repents. John is saying, you must go further than repent. Repentance involves turning from sin, and repentance is the first step of salvation. But you must repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and believe. You must be born again. And if you don't have God's Spirit dwelling in you, Romans 8 9 says you're not His. He says, I baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with the fire. Baptized with the Holy Spirit means that Jesus' power is at work in the person. But baptized with fire, it's, it's kind of twofold. It has a purifying effect on the person who's repentant. And on the unrepentant, it has that destroying the chaff effect. The refining, uh, Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. 
A person may say they are repentant, but God's spiritual furnace of the work of the Holy Spirit through trials and tribulations will reveal if it's so. If a person is truly repentant, then the fiery tiles that, trials that test them will have a purifying effect. And, it, and we can rejoice in that, God, when we see what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life. In verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand. will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John again prophesies to Israel, judgment is coming. And he gives this picture of a threshing floor, which is where they brought all the grain they had harvested with everything, the stalk and everything, the chaff, they called it. And they would beat it and everything, and then they would come and they would take these, these woven kind of basket things, kind of shaped like a big, a giant's, a heel in uh, insert for a giant's shoe, just this giant thing with an edge. And they'd come and they'd dig it into the pile and they'd throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow and it'd blow the chaff up against the wall and the good grain would fall down. And they'd burn the chaff and they'd keep the grain. And it's a spiritual picture of Jesus separating. He's threshing the Jews. He's separating the good grain from the worthless chaff, the unrepentant, by the wind of the Holy Spirit. The good grain goes to heaven versus the chaff going to hell. And Jesus, John says, already has the fan in his hand. Judgment is near. There's a call to repentance here. And it's a call to repentance that the nation of Israel fails to heed. But, you know, we, we kind of, Tyler taught on hating sin on Wednesday. And now I'm talking about repentance today. And uh, it's a message that isn't a lot of fun. Matter of fact, some people, like I said, don't want to hear it. I know Robert Schuler and his ministry said it's the most unchristian thing to try and convince somebody they're a sinner. I think it's the most unloving thing. Now, man, it's the, it's the most obvious thing in the world that we're all sinners, guys. But God loves you. He'll forgive you. And he has a life for you, man. It's the life he meant to dwell within you. But repentance is the start. We've got to do it. And uh, it's a good time to really think about that because of what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be um, taking communion today. We're going to be remembering what the Lord has done for, for us in, in the celebration of His. Guys, come on. Come on forward, guys. Um, it's going to give you a chance really to reflect on the Lord's work. You know what? Because here's the deal, guys. Our only hope is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Come on over. He has come. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And as you partake of this, hang on to it when you get it. We'll partake of it together. But as you do, just think about it. Just think about what the Lord has done for us. Is there things you need to repent of? Have you just the first time repentance or something you've been struggling with, bring it to God.